This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit reconstructionistradio.com to download our free audiobooks. The title of this book is Don't Talk to the Police, The Ultimate American Weapon, A Common Lawyer Comments, Copyright 2010, Written by Brent Allen Winters. Visit commonlawyer.com for more information. Appendix 4 Criminal Law Industry Criminal law in America has become the criminal law industry, an all-embracing profit-driven machine. For example, at the federal level, this industry has been organized as any other for-profit business under the name Federal Prisons Industries, Inc., incorporated 1934. Our state and federal legislatures, all unruly and renegade 51 of them, now manufacture crimes by statute at an alarming rate. Prisons cannot be built fast enough to keep up. At the federal level alone, among the greatest threats to our freedom is the fast-growing federalization of criminal law. Best estimates of the number of federal felonies by statute now stand at over 5,550. Due to overlap and duplication, however, no one can be sure of the exact number. This, in the teeth of our Constitution, which enumerates only four kinds of crimes the federal government may prosecute. Piracies and felonies on the high seas, counterfeiting the current coin and securities of the United States, violations of international law, and treason. Until 1895, the only federal prisons were Navy brigs and Army barracks. The few men convicted of one of the four kinds of federal laws our Constitution lists were jailed in these military prisons. In 1895, however, in response of the then-incipient federal bureaucratic state's desire to promote its prestige and power, using more visibly profiled prisons, the federal government built its first prison. By 1970, only about 30 federal prisons had been built. By 1980, another 40 more. And by 2000, almost another 40. More than any other false law, the national craze prohibiting alcohol fueled federal bureaucrats' power. The criminal law industry built Alcatraz to be the grandest showboat promotion of its power to that date. But it was never filled because by that time, Americans had ingested a bellyful of federal fear-mongering using harmless small-town and hillbilly moonshiners. Need anyone say the obvious? Freedom will not long last where a runaway, ravenous, criminal law industry develops a machine to devour a country's wealth, manufacturing crimes by legislation, to justify building and operating prisons for profit. Such crimes by congressional fiat provide excuse, albeit false, for building untold numbers of federal prisons and hiring swarms of bureaucrats, federal agents, prosecutors, prison guards, probation officers, to fill these barred warehouses with mostly non-dangerous men, and nowadays even women, now approaching 250,000 federal prisoners. At about $40,000 per prisoner per year, totaling $10 billion per year. All this money spent, no, it's not an investment, profits nothing, but rather deters government employees from honorable, productive work and taxpayers from putting their money to honorable, productive pursuits. Of note, those disagreeing with me on this point, including federal judges, lack the experience and knowledge gained from having done time in federal prison. Congress in further support of the criminal law industry, fashions each of its criminal statutes with a wide range of sentence length 
allowing the sentencing judge to throw the accused in jail for decades or more if, instead of pleading guilty, he has the patriotic temerity to demand his fundamental right to trial by jury and is convicted. Consequently, a guilty plea in hopes of a shorter sentence and in exchange for helping the judge ease his tight docket schedule is the accused only real option. Besides, demanding trial before a judge whose docket is overloaded, with about 500 pending cases, may get a jury trial, but it will be with an anxious, overloaded, overcharged, cynical, 13th juror called judge, having more power than the other 12 put together and focused more upon relieving the unimaginable administrative burden of his caseload. Judges nowadays, says Justice Scalia, are increasingly bureaucratic, than on relaxing and allowing the time needed to ensure a fair contest of battle by trial between the accused, facing loss of life, liberty, or property, and his accusers. Finally, knowing grand juries easily play into the prosecutor's hands, the prosecutor will charge the accused with as many crimes as he can find. Among the now over at least 5,550, sometimes overlapping and often open-ended federal criminal statutes. And the court, even if the defendant is acquitted of all the laundry list of crimes charged but one, will sentence the accused as though he was convicted of them all and decree a greater sentence to boot for the defendant that demanded his right to trial by jury. Violations of such felonies so-called occur at a rate of about three per American per day, because the American cannot know the volumes of fickle felonies by legislative fiat. Of these crimes by legislative fiat, many require no proof of criminal intent. One learned commentator says that everyone who signs a tax return makes himself a possible target for criminal prosecution. We should add to this anyone who signs a bank loan or provides information to any other federally funded program. And even though the Supreme Court has held that due to the complexity of the tax code, Tax crimes require proof of the defendant's knowledge of the provision he is accused of having violated. Federal trial and appellate judges have ignored this Supreme Court requirement. Appendix 5. Why the jury and not the judge? Your whole life you have done nothing but be a judge, and you come to think the government is always right. Contrast that with the Anglo-Saxon system where, in the most important courts, the judges not only have not been spending their whole lives with their snout in the public trough, they've been suing the government. They've been defending their clients against the government. It's a different mindset. Justice Scalia If grand jurors and trial jurors understood that we do not ask them to decide cases because we trust them to understand the law and proceedings, the innocent would more often walk free. But we do not. Indeed, as often as not, lawyers... This includes judges themselves, do not understand the law, mistaking its right meaning and application. In fact, if lawyers understood law, they would more often agree about legal questions and not be driven to battle by trial to settle their differences. Moreover, they would never haggle over proper jury instructions. However, unlike the juror, lawyers have become too familiar, this includes judges, with the workings of the criminal law machine, and consequently have become numb to wholly feel and see soul and body, spirit and mind, what a non-lawyer on the jury can feel and see. We ask jurors to decide cases not because jurors can understand the law, not to say they could not if given time to worry over it for a spell, but because they are untouched by the lawyer's familiarity with law that can breed contempt. 
Over time, the lawyer, and even more so a judge, tends to retreat even deeper into the security of the lawyer's layer of objectivity, where he feels free to bathe questions of law in cynic acid. Defendants in criminal trials suffer the unjust results. On the other hand, the juror can bring balance to a grand jury proceeding in criminal trial, so long as he does not try to play the lawyer. Why would anyone want to imitate such a creature? Bottom line, we impanel the jury because the centuries have taught us that lawyers and judges are less fit. Some learned commentators use the term unfit than non-lawyers to decide criminal matters. Consider well. When we want to know whether the government should be given permission to take a man's life, liberty, or property in a criminal trial, our common law tells us not to request a committee of lawyers from the State Bar Association to decide, but to grab a dozen men, just as we find them, standing around on the courthouse square if necessary. Your commenter was involved in a rural county trial where the judge, having exhausted the summoned jury pool without getting the required dozen, prepared to order the sheriff to do just that. Passell's city canon law lawyers, covering like a blanket near every country on the globe, opine from their dusty libraries and cloisters that we in America are cavemen-like, and though they do not enjoy our abundance, they nonetheless take subjective self-induced comfort in their self-appraised intellectual superiority. But by contrast, we enjoy the confidence of knowing from our real experiences in battle by trial that our beloved grand jury and trial jury form the very foundation of our freedoms from government power. No country in the history of mankind has ever lost its freedoms as long as the jury was being used according to the course of the common law. Appendix 6. Right. Its meaning. Though right is a hackneyed word, it's true. For example, right. Meaning is nonetheless necessary to genuine discussions of truth. Right denotes those words and acts in keeping with the Creator's character and will as His eternal word reveals these. Right derives from the old Anglo-Saxon root, reet, meaning to put straight in order and proper alignment. Modern English retains this meaning. Further, the Anglo-Saxon used the term volkreet to denote their tradition of law and government, which we nowadays call our common law. To the Anglo-Saxon, law, or reet, comprise the unchanging and timeless principles which we must discover and to which he must always align his understanding and behavior in order to survive and thrive. Also, right is authority, which has its source only in God, the author and spring of all that is right and of all our rights. Thus, one's rights are God-given. It is silly, therefore, to hold that God gives a right, such as the right of conscience, to one man, while he gives to another man in government the right to deny that man's right of conscience. God-bestowed rights, including the right of conscience, are beyond the lawful reach of government. A further distinction is needful between those rights God bestows direct upon each and every person and that authority from God that reaches the individual by indirect means through human delegation. Those rights God bestows direct and without exception upon each of Adam's offspring in every generation, no man can take away because no man gave them. By distinction, that God-authored authority that reaches the individual by indirect means through human delegation, such a man, having made that secondary delegation, can take it back. In sum, the power to give includes the power to take, as also the power to appoint entails the power to disappoint. The right to associate includes the right to disassociate, and the right to speak is coextensive with the right to remain silent. Further, and most important, at common law, 
Right is that which one asserts against an encroaching, trespassing government. It calls such a request to bring an action against the sovereign a petition of right because government authority ends where the fundamental, God-given right of the individual begins. To be sure, the state is without authority to trespass upon one's God-given rights and ever-present responsibilities. To do so is to trespass upon the sovereign God. Thus, for example, if the English House of Lords gives its advice and consent to the Crown to allow a plaintiff's action against the Crown, the Attorney General gives that consent with the words, Let right be done. A common law recognition of the limited sovereignty of government yielding to the unlimited sovereignty of God over the individual's right and obedience to true law. Appendix 7 Oaths and Vows The word oath stems from an old Germanic root for one's seldom promise to place oneself in the hands of a greater party, trustworthy to retaliate on one failing to do what one has promised, thereby better ensuring the doing of the thing promised. By contrast, the word vow, stemming from an old French root, is like an oath in that it is also a promise but places one's self in the hands of the party to whom one is making one's promise for retaliation in the event of a breach. Thus, both are solemn promises intended to impress the promiser with the gravity of his undertaking, the oath inviting another, more powerful party to retaliate in case of breach, the vow intending the one promised to retaliate. For example, a witness's oath is a promise made to men while calling God to retaliate in case of breach, whereas marriage vows are promises made direct to God and by so doing places the promiser himself in the hands of God for consequences in case of breach. Further, an oath or a vow can be a general promise, swearing to do many things, the oath-taker embracing these within his oath. Accordingly, oaths are often dangerously broad. Our familiar common law witness is broad, and general promise to men that his answers to unknown questions shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, while further pre-accepting divine judgment in case of his breach, so help me God, is called an oath. Whereas a witness's precise promise to God is called a vow. Thus, has our common law always distinguished the oath from the vow? Consider the crime called perjury. A false oath, a general promise to be truthful while fully intending to lie. Thus, perjury is complete and therefore prosecutable as soon as the witness makes his false oath. No lying under oath is required. In fact, lying under oath is not perjury, but rather only one piece of evidence that the witness has likely perjured himself. His oath, promise, to tell the truth was a lie, knowingly false words. For these reasons, seasoned prosecutors learn that perjury is hard to prove. Appendix 8. Banks. Keep in mind, it is a federal felony to make any misrepresentation to a bank or other federally insured financial institution. One cannot afford, says Justice Stevens, to even accept a cigar from a loan officer, pretending to like cigars in order not to offend. And worse, once targeted, the feds will comb every scrap of paper, every record, and all communications with every bank with which the target has done business, going back as far as 20 years, to find anything that may be construed as an attempt to mislead a banker. Bottom line, to talk to a banker requires the same care as talking to a government employee. Yes, the evil empire moves on us apace. Afterward. 
Jurisdiction is the right to act regarding a certain person or clear-cut matter. Further, God has delegated a clear-cut jurisdiction over criminal matters to men, who in turn have delegated it to man's present government on earth. Therefore, man's government holds the right to act regarding definite criminal wrongs done. But as with all delegations of right, that is authority, from a delegator to his agent, God, the author of all authority, limits the scope and reach of his agents, government employees, right to act respecting any given criminal matter. Consequently, no government employee has authority when acting outside the scope of his agency, that is, his official job description, because any authority, a government employee, from black-robed judges and prosecutors to clerks and bureaucrats, may have is God-given. He, as all other men, will answer to his Maker concerning whether he kept his actions and his words within God's delegated limits, regardless of whether he has spoken or acted alone or in league with others. Conspiring to usurp power, God is neither delegated to him nor to his co-conspirators. Simply said, law always limits the jurisdiction of government employees over any given criminal matter. This means that the desire of any of them to convict another of a crime can never justify the means used to achieve that conviction. Brusquely put, nowhere do the laws of nature and of nature's God allow any government employee or any combination of them to do whatever he wants in order to get whomever he wants. Such policy always results in abuse of the law-abiding, and indeed, now does so with unchecked and far-reaching force. Force, within God's jurisdictional limits, is a lawful tool of government's criminal jurisdiction. Within the scope of this delegated authority, however, there is no right in policemen and other government agents to use unlawful force or threat of force against the rights of Americans. For example, warrantless searches and arrests, false identities and promises, and other devices of deceit and intimidation, used in callous disrespect of another's right to remain silent, to get information. In short, no government employee, high-placed or low, has any right to do wrong to a fellow American or anyone else. Never forget, the investigative and enforcement fangs of American criminal jurisdiction are blunted by common law's presumption of innocence out of which springs our other fundamental government-limiting rights, such as your right to keep mum, that is, to stay silent. Respecting the courts, our common law continues to demand that any man charged with deciding criminal matters at every level fulfill two simple requirements. He must know the law and be determined to keep it. Magna Carta is our first modern expression of these standards as wrested from King John in the form of a promise. We, John and his successors, will not make, for example, a point. Justices, constables, sheriffs, or bailiffs who do not know the law of the land and mean to observe it well. This provision not only requires those administering trials to know the law of the land, common law, due process, but also subjects such judges, officers, and clerks to that requirement. Nowadays, this standard is not only ignored, but scoffed at. In fact, it has been discarded for so long that it is wholly unknown. Without question, government employment has bloated into a culture of callous disrespect for individual rights. How to find the law statutes and appellate decisions in the direction these tend, respecting a given legal question, is not the secreted knowledge of an elite legal profession. Most anybody, given enough time and effort, can discover the law and answer to a particular question. But what happens when the bureaucratic static powers that be, that is the wrong-headed state of government, refuses to follow the controlling law 
once found, such as now the growing pig-headedness of government employees at all levels. Consequently, statutes and case law are often of no concern, much ado about nothing. Though the men wielding government power in disrespect of the laws of nature and of nature's God have duped themselves into believing they may have successfully broken these laws by disregarding them, they have not. They will learn in time that they have broken themselves on these laws without remedy. Simply put, these laws of nature's God embrace the standards and judgments of God and, being eternal, cannot be broken. Just as men and women long for others to respect their right to speak, they also rightly long for others to respect their right not to speak. To this end, the Creator has given to each member of mankind, including you, authority over the earth and its creatures, called dominion. Wise use of this non-delegable duty of lordship depends upon your control of one small member of your body, your tongue. See Generally James, teaching that one's control over actions of one's body enables one to conquer evil men, but that only control of one's tongue enables control of one's entire body. In fact, because each member of Adam's race bears the deep engraved, indelible mark of God's flawless imagination, God's image, each person exercises this right of lordship, as does his creator, by wise use of words, discerning when to speak and when not to speak. God governs with words, so also men, being the creation of God's holy imagination, wield the right of rule using their creator's gift of speech. Accordingly, to enjoy the right of lordship God has bequeathed to you requires your recognition that this authority or right God gives to each man over his tongue is God's gift and that his gifts, as also his callings, are without repentance. That is, he will never change his mind and conclude he has made a mistake by giving this gift and then take it back. See Romans 11.29 For this reason, to disrespect the right to keep silent is to despise God's authority delegated to each man over his tongue, and to despise authority is to despise God, the author of all authority. These things in mind, it stands to reason that God demands under pain of his wrath that all respect his gift of the right to keep silent. Your power to remain silent is from the right not to speak. Indeed, it is impossible for all the power of political government, as distinguished from the authority of God's government called his kingdom, to make anyone talk who is savvy enough to know his authority over his tongue, wise enough to discern his duty, and gritty enough to stay silent. This God-given power is yours if you want to keep it. To squander it, is an offense against not only your own soul, but chiefly against the author of your authority over your tongue. The key to all other rights of human government. See James 3.2, Proverbs 16.32. True patriotism is not loyalty to any person or persons wielding government power, but is zeal for the common law principles of our Constitution and Declaration. Thank you for listening to this audiobook titled don't Talk to the Police, The Ultimate American Weapon, A Common Lawyer Comments, by Brent Allen Winters, narrated by Jason Sanchez. Please visit commonlawyer.com for more information and reconstructionistradio.com to download more of our audiobooks and podcasts.